0: City Church in Over the Rhine is cultivating the kind of family Jesus introduced to the world in the city of Cincinnati. We're glad you're choosing to listen to a sermon from our weekly service. We would love to meet you. Visit us on Instagram or at citychurchotr.com. Enjoy. Good morning. I'll start with uh, what's going to very soon become obvious. I don't really have a voice. And, um, so I'm sorry for the way you're going to have to lean in this morning. It sounds infinitely better than when I woke up this morning, so that's really great. Um, and it's thrown off all kinds of things this morning. I was supposed to lead worship, and, uh, <laughs> it's finally my shot. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, they filming, so this is going to be good. Um, hey, I have, uh, been talking uh, we've been in a series on our values and i've been talking a lot about um what would it look like uh, how would we um prepare if god breathed his spirit on the city of cincinnati specifically what if he decided to use city church and i've been talking a lot about and we will continue to talk about like what happens if a move of god comes here and i want to read a text we just heard a testimony um they heard that maybe something happened to a woman in our church, a good thing, like she got healed. And I was like, well, I, I want to figure that out. And so I texted her friend. And uh, and I don't know if some of you guys were there. January 1st, we didn't do a normal church service. We just felt like family. It was awesome. We're going to do it every year, I think. Um, but in the middle of that, we just said, hey, if you're like not feeling well or if there's something wrong, get in the middle. And we prayed for a number of people for physical healing. And so I texted her friend, and her friend texted me back this. Um, it was her humorous bone from a fall that she took she was seen at urgent care on December 30th before the Sunday we gathered and they did an x-ray they did an x-ray telling her it was broken we prayed for her on that Sunday she saw an orthopedic doctor on Tuesday and he said I don't know what they saw but your arm is not broken come on And I want to keep talking about what would happen if a move of God came. And I want to submit to you, maybe we're in the midst of one. Guys, stuff like this is happening. My voice is back. Here we go. What if we're actually living in one? What if this is the beginning of one? And so I don't want to just prepare for the future. I want to say, I want to look around. I want to hear testimonies like Calvin. I want to hear testimonies like this and say, man, maybe we're actually in the midst of a move of God. And how does that change how we live? How does that change how we pray? How does that change how we engage with each other? So here we go. Ephesians 4, I am ready to go this morning. We've been reading this every week through this series. It's a series through our values. And Ephesians 4, 11 to 15, uh, leads to verse 15, where it's kind of the summary of what is supposed to happen. And it says this, that uh, all of this is happening. We're gathering as a church so that we will become, in every respect... The mature body. The goal of this Jesus following experience is maturity. It says later the the fullness of Christ. We're supposed to be in the midst of him. The fullness of Christ. And so the goal is maturity. But here's the best kept secret, the worst kept secret in the church. Something that we've got to break out of. It is fun to pursue maturity. It is a joy to become more like Jesus. And I feel like I was sold this line. I don't even know by who, and sometimes we sell it to each other that like, man, it's such. It is a, bur- it's a burden to follow Jesus. There are things you probably, sh- you should not do. There are people you probably should not date. There are things that you, you gotta, I mean, we're asked to give away 10% of your income. Like, that's crazy. It is a burden to follow Jesus. And it is so much fun to get more of him. The joy is so much greater than the burden. The joy of following Jesus is so much greater than the burden. So I, wanna, I just want you to repeat after me. I wanna ingrain this in us. This is fun. So I want you to repeat after me. It is a joy to become more like Jesus. Now we'll do it like we mean it. It is a joy to become more like Jesus. One more time, it is a joy to become more like Jesus. We are in full cult mode now Come on, if you're new here, I'm so sorry. I'm not preaching next week, so you can come back. <laughs> Guys, it is, it is a joy to become more like Jesus. And so through this series uh, on our values, family mission, presence, formation, we haven't really preached on them since the first two services two and a half years ago that this church launched. And, and I want to read, we're on the fourth one today, I want to read something from our website, uh, if you can put that on the slide. And, um, and this is about the fourth one, formation. This is just from our website. I copy and pasted it. Jesus had countless rhythms that made him unique. We want to imitate those rhythms. We want to practice living the life that Jesus lived. Our aim is to worship Jesus as Lord and to orient our lives to look like his. Our lives to look like his. We know that anxiety... Is often easier than peace, anger easier than forgiveness, and self-promotion easier than humility, but we are dedicated to traveling the difficult road that leads to being more like Jesus. We're focused on being transformed into his image because we know that the life Jesus lived is life to the full. I love this last sentence. And we're convinced that we'll never regret any decision we make to become more like him. I didn't write that sentence, that was my friend Tyler, and guys, it's true. I'm so convinced of that. When he said it, I was like, ah, oh, that's true. I've never regretted any decision that I've made to be more like Jesus. And so we're gonna go uh, put on the Venn diagram. We've been working through this for the last few weeks. These are three of our four values. Um, I got this from Church of the City, which is a church in New York, John Tyson, uh, that's there. And uh, these happen to be their three values. Now, our fourth one is family, and I've been saying this. The black part of the slide is family. It's all done in the context of family, and if we're not doing this with people that we love and trust, it is going to be really, really difficult, if not impossible, to live right in the middle of where those overlap, that Jesus following right in the middle. And so um, I've talked about what happens, and I've started each week by saying, what happens when we make today's topic the goal or the idol or the God? And I said, when we um, pursue mission, Above anything else, when mission becomes above um, Jesus following, when it becomes above formation or presence, you get uh, secular renewal. If You see that there? You get secular renewal. When you pursue presence above anything else, forget about the other things, you get hyper-spirituality. And today, if, uh, before I talk about the importance of formation, if we make formation the only thing we're trying to do, we end up with spiritual narcissism. We don't want that. So I want to read Matthew 23, uh, that Jesus sort of gives us an image, uh, a window into spiritual narcissism. He's talking to the Pharisees, and he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. So Jesus is kind of neutral on this. <laughs> He's really, really clear. And first of all, talking about tithing, Jesus says, no, no, we should be doing that. We should, we should, I mean, and these guys were tithing on their spices. That is like, man, to the letter of the law. Jesus says, no, I, I want you to tithe. I want you to do the, relig- the, the practices of Jesus, but don't neglect justice and mercy and faithfulness. Don't actually forget to bring my presence into the midst of this. Don't don't forget to live on mission as you're taking these things to other places. If you're just trying to do these little things, you'll do them, but it's not the end goal. When we have formation without anything else, that is a religious mindset. It's a a religious mindset. It's it's spiritual image management. It's self-righteousness. We don't want to just say, I'm gonna pursue formation to the cost of everything else. Formation is a means to an end. And without formation, or I'm sorry, without presence and mission in the midst of formation, we're just trying to look spiritual. But we want to actually be spiritual. We wanna be right in the middle of that circle. So that's what happens if we only go after formation. Let's talk about why we want to have formation in partnership with presence and with mission. Without formation, you can go to the next one. We are what Tyson calls shallow servants. Shallow servants. There's a lack of depth to our faith. And I love the way, um, especially in our values, I love the way that presence and formation works together. It's really, really cool because oftentimes you'll see communities of faith or maybe what you're drawn to is one or the other. Man, I love the presence of God. It'll change me in a moment. No, I haven't read the Bible in two or three years. I'm going to have my quiet time every morning and I'm going to pray and I'm going to tell God all that I need but I'm not going to listen to it for his voice I'm not going to seek out miracles I'm not going to invite him in to those moments I just need to do it so I can tell other people I did it and oftentimes, depending on your personality or your church background we're drawn to one or the other but we want to say no, no, no it is both and formation and presence beautifully work together and shallow servants this thing without formation often lacks some kind of depth or stability in their relationship with God I've asked this every week I've said which one of these three is the easiest for you to let go I said the first week when uh, I start to lose intimacy with Jesus or when I get really busy it's easy for me to lose mission maybe for some of you it's presence maybe for some of you it's formation we start to throw out some of the practices and the disciplines when things get hard <clears throat> here's potentially how you could measure that, Um, does your spiritual life, do you ever sense that it lacks a depth or a stability to it? Do you feel like you're watching everybody else and they're engaging in more of Jesus, but you've been following for just as long and yet there's still not quite that depth that you see in them? Or do you have really high highs with him and really low lows? If there's a lack of stability then you're going to have those extremes in your walk. But if you're grounded in something, those start to become a little bit more narrow. Not that emotion or feelings don't matter, but they matter a little bit less when you're grounded in a formative piece of following Jesus. Mark 6 uh, is one of the most confusing passages, I think, in the Bible. Jesus goes to his hometown, and uh, everybody starts questioning him. And they're like, man, I don't know if you're who you say you are, because we know your dad, your dad, and, uh, and we know your mom, and uh, they're nothing special, and uh, so we're not really sure if that's, if that's, like, if you're who you say you are, and there's all kinds of accusations coming around him, and then um, it says this in Mark 6:5, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Don't you wish Jesus' bad day was your bad day? I love that. He was amazed at their lack of faith, but it says that he could not. There was a limit on Jesus. Now, that sounds theologically terrible, but it's, I mean, he did submit himself to become fully man, and in his hometown, Mark said, man, he had a hard time there because of the lack of faith. There there were limits that people were putting on him. Jesus was rarely amazed. I think it's actually only twice that he was amazed, both of them involving faith. One, when he saw someone that's not even from Israel. He's like, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. The other time is this. He was amazed at their lack of faith. We can amaze Jesus with our faith. It's pretty crazy. Just depends which way we go with it. And they amazed Jesus at their lack of faith. I said this last week. God is a gentleman and he often goes where he is wanted. Formation is how we build a spiritual infrastructure to say right here. This is where you're coming. I want you right here. I've built this out for your presence to come. I want you here. God often goes where he is wanted. We want to be hungry for more of God. Formation creates a life that welcomes God and doing all that he wants to do. Formation, also talking about that partnership with presence, is way less exciting. And, And I feel fine saying that. Presence is way more exciting than Formation. Uh, my big job that I had in college, throughout college, was I was a, a referee, basketball referee. And um, so, I, I mean, it was mostly middle school, some high school. But my goal, and I'm an extrovert, I don't, like, I don't mind interacting with people or even being in front of people. Ever. I mean, I hated that job. My goal every time was like, I hope nobody notices me. That's the goal. That's the goal of a referee, is to not be noticed. I feel for the sound people. The goal of a sound person is to not be noticed. And so you're going for anonymity in that place. And man, some of the things that Suburban Dad said to me, I'm still working on in therapy. <laughs> it's crazy how much people care. And so I was a Ref, and I realized, like, it is such a unique position for me to know I'm doing well when nobody says anything and when nobody notices. And I actually think it's similar with formation. With presence, I can tell healing stories or crazy tithing stories or all the demons that came out that one time in India, and those stories grip our attention because the presence of God has come near. But when I tell stories of people that have slowly but surely built up a framework to get rid of pornography, or stories of how people have started to slowly pray more and more over time, that, it's not really a story that holds our attention, and that's fine. It's not as engaging as a story. And you'll rarely notice this. You'll rarely notice formation in your life. It's like being a referee. You will rarely notice that you don't have formative practices in your life until you need them and it's too late. The presence of God, you'll know. You'll know when he's here. You will rarely notice. Man, I don't know if there is a depth. I don't know if there is a stability in my relationship until stuff happens and all of a sudden, you need to be grounded into something. We see it most commonly or at least most um, out there with pastors, but we are not the only ones that are pursuing mission and presence without formative practices. We all have to be grounded in something. Ephesians 4, 14, we read this, says that they were being tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Formation grounds us against the enemy, but also formation guides us in culture. And I wanna talk for about 10 minutes on what the two options that we have are as we pursue formation because you will be formed into something something is forming you into a certain kind of image is it that we're pursuing deformation which is where culture is leading us culture is not leading you towards Jesus it is deforming you into the image of Jesus versus biblical Jesus centered things is counterformation so i want to talk the difference about deformation and counterformation we're going to start we're going to read through the rest of ephesians 4 And I want to warn you, as I talk about deformation, it's going to be heavy. Like this is, and I think it's going to do some good for some of us because it did some good for me this week. But the next 10 minutes, seven minutes aren't going to be like super fun, but relevance is. Relevance is coming. There will be joy, but we're going to talk about, because it's important to understand what happens when culture gets a hold of us and we start to be moved out of the image of Jesus. Also, we are not the kind of church that hides in the church walls and says, man, culture's super scary. Still believe 16 is true, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So that thing can't beat this thing. So we don't hide here. Gates are defensive. We're going to attack them. We're going to take them. And we need to be aware what is forming us into what kind of image. So Ephesians 4, 18, deformation, it says just later on after what Calvin read. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. If you can put up the YWAM belief tree, I love this. I talked about this a few months ago. We spend a ton of time talking about what is existing above the soil. And we should. Actions, decisions, values. Every now and then we talk about beliefs. What do we believe and why we believe them? But it is important to understand what is even feeding the soil, the roots of our hearts. And it is our worldview. This all starts with worldview. What kind of worldview? Who gets to speak into the lens with which you see the world? And right now, we're living in the middle of a shift from a Christian culture to a post-Christian culture. And that sounds bad, and in some ways it's not great. Christian culture wasn't all that great either. Founding fathers, we're certainly not all Christians, but that's what we're moving from, especially in the last 50 years, especially in the last 10. We have become a post-Christian culture, and here's what that means. That means that still everybody wants the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what your religious background is. Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Everybody can get behind what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. We want the kingdom of God. Everybody does, but not all of us want the king, and we cannot have the kingdom without the king. And so we're all pursuing this utopia. Everybody wants that to come. And so the world with which we see, the lens at which we view the world is going to matter on how we get there. What lens is it? Is it a lens of culture or is it a biblical Jesus-centered lens? I want to use love as an example. Love's a big deal. um, But you can change what love is depending on where your worldview starts. So let's say that I, um, I, I want to talk about love, and, and love changes the way that I engage with my wife, or the unborn, or the immigrant, or the, how I look at marriage, or how I look at poverty. And then comes the question, whose definition of love do we use? And this is just an example. Culture or the Bible? And let's say that I choose culture, because I like culture a little bit better. I have a little more sway there. I can change some things. So I choose to define love around what culture says. So I say, this is just an example, but I say love is X. Love is X. Now, love is defined around my preferences and my prejudices, which isn't great. It's not terrible, but it's not great. What really gets toxic, though, is when you say, "No, that's not true." Love is love is Y, and you start to define love around your preferences and your prejudices. Now, this would be no big deal. We could just disagree, but not today. We can't just disagree. And not on something so important as love. And so you say Y, I say X, one thing leads to another. It's this, that, back and forth, bing bong. He said, she said, someone gets canceled. We take sides. Partisan splits right down the middle. And all of a sudden, we are on polar opposites of what we've defined as what love is. And we can't reconcile. And do you think that I'm just going to sit there and, well, that's just my thoughts No, now it's going to inform the way that I actually live my life. It's going to inform my actions because of my thoughts. And we've just partisaned the most beautiful thing in the world. This starts from a worldview that says, I'm going to choose this, and I'm going to define it here because there is no real ultimate truth. It's mine. And then you say the opposite, and all of a sudden these things clash, and we get cancel culture and partisan theology, not just partisan politics it is very very dangerous to engage with a worldview that you can help shape based on your preferences and your prejudices worldview is the front door to formation formation starts long before you make any kind of decision formation starts with the lens with which you see the world darkened in their understanding that's worldview then it goes on to say the hardening of their hearts that's a decision that was made so let's look at the garden It starts with a worldview that God is good. Adam and Eve are there. And then the the serpent comes and says, did God really say? Now, that's not a decision. That was simply an invitation that the serpent was giving into a different worldview. Hey, you've understood this to be that God is good. I want to submit something else to you. Did God really say blank? And then the decision came to eat the fruit. It didn't start with a decision. It started with a shift in worldview that adam and eve engaged in so worldview is the front door and then it goes to a decision and then it says this and this is the height of deformation we're almost there having lost verse 19 having lost all sensitivity they have given themselves over again this is the apex of deformation when sin no longer feels wrong when sin no longer feels wrong If worldview is the gateway and the decision that you make is the rubber hitting the road, it gets really bad when you start to lose conviction around things that are not like God. And you see this exact same thing laid out in Romans 1. Romans 1, Paul is talking about them and he says it started by when they suppressed the truth. They chose a different worldview. And then it says that they gave their hearts away. They made a decision to do something else. And it leads to verse 24. Don't put it up yet because this is i believe the scariest verse in the whole bible it's not about hell it's not about smiting it's not about war or killing it says this go ahead and put it up therefore god gave them over in their sinful desires of the hearts uh, of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another did you catch that god gave them over and this is not just about sex or sexuality this is god saying okay you go ahead and we think and i think i mean the worst thing god could do is punish me for my sin the worst thing god could do is is keep making me feel that that thing i feel whenever i do something wrong or i think something wrong or i i'm not fully obedient into his presence actually the worst thing that god can do is say hey you do you millennial translation (laughs) you do you great bumper sticker terrible theological framework where god says okay I'm gonna let you have it. I'm gonna let you have what you want. And when you start to feel that, this is the heaviest part. Guys, you're in a really bad spot. And there needs to be some kind of change now. When you start to lose the sensitivity to what the Holy Spirit that you invited in at the moment of your conversion, when you start to lose the conviction from him, that's that's when we hit the apex of being deformed out of the image of Jesus now here's the bad news which I don't know what the last eight minutes were but here's the bad news the more that we choose to do this the easier it gets to walk away the more we choose to walk away the easier it gets this is both theological and scientific neuro pathways in your brain start to make connections with when I do this I feel this and so it gets easier and easier you're literally forming a path in your brain and that's the image that somebody gave me back in college they came in and they talked to our Bible study and, uh, uh, of all men. And they said, just so you know, I want, I want you to see a, a, a big field of tall grass. There's n- it's untouched. And I remember he said, I, I want you to picture, like when you watch pornography for the first time, you start to walk a path in that field. And he said, when you look backwards, you can hardly see anything's different. It's not a big deal. Maybe there was like a little bit of bent on some of the grass. But he said, as that happens, day after day after day, week after week, year after year, you start to find that path easier and easier and easier. And I remember as he described that, and then I later read Romans 1, I'm like, oh, that, that's what this is. That's the losing of the sensitivity. That's making connections in my mind with something that shouldn't be there. I can tell you that this is true from my life. Uh, Catherine and I, by the grace of God, seriously the grace of God. We were virgins on our wedding night, but we put boundaries up at the beginning of our dating relationship that we crossed. In that first year, we kept crossing. And the first time we crossed it, it was like the end of the world. It was awful. It felt terrible. And the second time, it was really bad. And by month six or seven or eight, I started to feel like, I don't know, maybe God forgot about, this. like, I don't feel anything anymore. Like, it feels like maybe he doesn't care about this boundary. And I started to believe that, and it's one of the worst things. I mean, I submitted that to Catherine. Luckily, she said, no, that's foolishness. She should have dumped me. When you stop feeling that conviction, it's the apex of deformation. How about some good news? Actually, first, put, I want you to put the slide up of deformation. This is what it looks like when we're living a life that is being deformed unto the image of Jesus. And actually, I wanna ask this question uh, before we go to the the next verse, because I I want you to actually think about this. The goal is not more knowledge, but life change. Is there something in your life that you used to feel conviction over? Do you have a, a me and Catherine moment? Is there something in your life that you used to feel conviction over? But there is another option. Than being deformed unto culture. There is, starting with the biblical worldview, there is counterformation. We are being, we are counter living in culture. And so counterformation leads to the thing that we want. Verse 20, so it's just Paul, keep going on in Ephesians 4. He says, That, however, is not the way of life that you learned. He said, That's not the worldview I taught you. There was a counterformational worldview that I told you about. And he says, You were taught. Verse twenty-two, with regard to the fo- your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self. So it starts with a counterformational worldview, and then it goes to a counterformational decision. I'm going to put on the new self. I'm going to reverse the sin patterns. I'm gonna let the grass grow back. I'm gonna make new pathways. I'm gonna make different connections in my brain. I'm gonna to choose to do different decisions. And it starts with a, a lens that we see the world but then it goes decision after decision, one decision at a time. It's not all built in a day. But it's one after another. You start to slowly take back and you start to put on that new self that Paul promised us and Jesus promised us was actually ours. In the last year of Catherine and I dating, we dated for 18 months and then we were engaged for four. So those last 10 months, it was crazy. We walked back slowly, our boundaries. And those last 10 months were incredible. We had almost no desire to cross them. And it got easier each month that went by. It got easier to start to form new habits of what works and doesn't work for us. And I, it's, it's very difficult to go backwards, but it is possible. When you choose counter-formational decisions, you can walk back things that were not once there. And on June 8, 2013, we got married. And that night, verse 24. <laughs> created, we just needed that, right? Come on. Paul, so heavy. I'm glad my parents are here this morning. Verse 24, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, a.k.a. he said it again, maturity. This is what we're going after. We're going after true righteousness. We're going after holiness. I want you to put up the slide of counterformation. This is what we get in response to lies. We get truth. In response to idols, we get worship. In response to addiction, we get freedom. In response to Satan, we get Jesus. In response to sin, we get righteousness. And in response to the world, we get to bring and live out the fullness of the kingdom of God here. It doesn't start when you die. We're not just trying to get to heaven. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. And it is living inside of you. Will we take hold of it? Will we choose to live a counter-formational life that makes the world question what's going on? And here's why it's important to remember that joy is a part of it. Because when they look at us, don't conjure it up, but when they look at us, and we just talk about how hard it is to follow Jesus and how much... We hate our church and how all the Christians around us are weird. When they hear that, they want no part of the Jesus. Now, we're not inviting them into a relationship with us primarily, we're inviting them into a relationship with Him. But we often are the gateway and the biggest stumbling block for them to get here. So let's live a little bit different lives. And let's live into counterformational lives with the fullness of joy because that's what changes lives out there. And that's how we start to take back the kingdom in Cincinnati. Every week I've been giving an illustration of a meal, right? And, and I've said, man, how much work is it when you eat a meal on your own? You've got to shop and prep and cook and bake and mix and set the table and do the dishes. And I've said, it's no wonder that we love, as a culture, going to restaurants. Because a, a restaurant is a business and a business makes things more convenient. And when I go to a restaurant, all of a sudden, I get all of those things taken care of me or taking care for me it's beautiful but so is having a Thanksgiving meal with your family or having all of your best friends over and doing a potluck it's beautiful and all of the same tasks exist someone's got to set the table and cook and bake and shop but man we get to do it together and I've been saying this every week but how you view something is going to determine how you interact with it so how do you view the church not just this church but how do you view that church And if you view the church like a business or like a restaurant, then the goal for you is going to be convenience. But if you view the church like a family, then all of a sudden it's a big Thanksgiving meal where I'm doing the dishes and you're cooking and she's shopping. And it's a beautiful thing because we get to do all of the things we have to do, but we get to do it together. All of a sudden, my problem becomes our problem, and it's beautiful to bear the problem together. And so the church is a family. It's not a business. The problem is that the Western church has primarily outsourced formation It's outsourced maturity to the professional Christians. And we've been told that if we come here, we listen to the professional, we listen to the band, that's being a Christian. No, no, this this is our big staff meeting. This is where we get filled up. This is where we get to hear testimony so that we go out Monday through Saturday and we live as missionaries in Cincinnati. There is a flip. It is not convenience. It is the formation and the revival of a city. And so if the Western church has trained that in us, we just have to train that out of us. Another example around the, 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 the table with a family. Um, growing up, I was, I was really short. And I'll give you like 10 seconds to think of all the jokes you want to say. Oh, you used to be short. Growing up, I mean, whatever. You, like. I went through high school. I can take whatever you have. This is absolutely the tallest I've ever been in my life proportionally and at Esther uh, we have an eight-month-old but at her four-month checkup, she was 65 percent in head 24 percent in weight and 8 percent in height and you laugh and sometimes it's like oh man she's okay it's like she is killing it as a Marlin (laughs) she doesn't know how lucky she is I never hit double digits and I usually was like around the five or six mark and and now for real, it was actually, uh, especially until I was like 16 or 16, it was a problem. Like I'd st- I got my driver's license and I had still not hit puberty. And so I had to sit on a pillow as I drove my first car. And, and so, and it actually was, and we can laugh now because I'm normal height, uh, it actually was a problem. It was like legitimate, there was some conser- concern around that. When we went to, and my mom fixed most, most of our meals, but we would occasionally go to a restaurant. Do you know how many waiters or waitresses asked me or showed concern about my lack of growth? None. Not one of them asked. Not one of them seemed to care. Why was that? Because that's not their job. They're there simply to serve us. They don't, my, that's, that's my problem. That's not their problem. Their problem is just getting me a refill of Diet Coke. Their problem is actually not the fact that I'm not growing correctly. But when we would sit around the family table, the four of us, do you know whose problem that was for me? It was all of our problems. My mom called all of the doctors. My dad went to work so he could pay for the medical bills. My little brother even went to the appointments as we tried to figure out what was wrong or was there something wrong. It was a family ordeal. And praise God, because when it started, I was 15, I couldn't drive to doctor's appointments. I couldn't navigate medical lingo. I didn't have any money to pay for that. And it was scary. The beauty of a family is that your problem becomes our problem. And around the dinner table at the Marlin house, my problem of my lack of growth was not my problem. It was our problem. And we dealt with it together. And that's the beauty of a church. Your problem of your lack of growth is not your problem. It's our problem. It's your house group's problem. My problem, the areas in me that don't look like Jesus, it's not just my problem. It's your problem. It's my house group's problem. It's my friend's problem. And this is the beauty of following Jesus together is that we get to actually do this together. And your problem doesn't have to be worked out in isolation. 2 Corinthians 3 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we've gone from counterformation. I'm sorry, we've gone from deformation to counterformation. But 2 Corinthians 3 says, no, no, all of this is leading to a goal, which is transformation. Because in a moment, our eternity can change. When you choose to follow Jesus, when you say, I want him to take my sin, and I want him to be my king and my Lord and my ever when you make that decision, which can happen this morning, when you make that decision, everything changes. And in a moment, you are right with God. And there is freedom that is released on you. And it's from that place that now we live out this counter-formational life. We don't start with that. We don't strive for it. We don't just try to bit like white-knuckle what it looks like to follow Jesus. No, we start with the beauty that we're given a new identity. And then it's from that place that I actually get to live more like Jesus. I don't have to. I get to. I can't wait to. And then 2 Corinthians 3 says... You do that, and you get transformed into his image. 35 years after Paul wrote the letter to the uh, church in Ephesus, um, John, one of Jesus' disciples, wrote the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and Jesus came to him, and Jesus said, Hey, I want you to say some things to a few churches, one of them being Ephesus. So 35 years later, the church at Ephesus is still alive and growing and doing good ministry since Paul wrote that letter beforehand. And Jesus starts off his note, his letter, by saying, hey, I love that you're doing this. I'm, I'm super thankful you're not engaging in that. I love the way that you're kind of working this out. And then he gets to the crux of it, and he says, but there is one thing I do want to talk to you about. There's one thing I really want to make sure that you get back to. Revelation 2.4 says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Good church, good ministry can still overshadow The love of which we had at first. And our values, I love our values, but they're just a means to an end. Honestly, we're just using our values family, mission, presence, formation. They are not what should conjure up our emotion, our identity. They're just leading us to love Jesus more, to become more like Him, to start to cultivate the Spirit of God inside each and every one of us. And that's the question we're after. How can we become more like Jesus? How can we start to love him more? How can we learn to be like him? And how can we learn to be with him? And our values, why we've been talking about this, is because it sets up a frame for how we're going to do ministry at this church. Family mission, presence formation, that's the frame at which we're going after. But Jesus has been our foundation since the very beginning. This, I copy and pasted this part of my sermon from the very first sermon that we gave two and a half years ago when we launched. Two and a half years ago, these were our values, but the foundation was Jesus. Two and a half years later, the foundation is still Jesus. In 10 years from now, the foundation is still going to be Jesus. And if we're not all about Jesus, if we're not pursuing the love of Jesus, if we're not seeking out the presence of Jesus, then we're just wasting our time a little bit like Ephesus was. But that will not be us. So we're going to stand and we're going to make a declaration as a family that we are still all about Jesus. And I love our values. I helped write our values. I felt like it was a divine moment when the Lord gave them to us, but they are just a means to an end. We are using them for all they're worth because it all comes down to the love of Jesus, to the foundation that Jesus is who he said he is. And so um, we're going to worship, and we're going to go after it. And whatever broke open last week, we're going to see if it's still here. We're going to see if see, he's still here, and we're going to worship. We're going to make a declaration that Jesus is still the foundation. There's prayer in all four corners. Do not come in and leave with the same burden you had. And if you want to choose to follow Jesus for the first time, these people can help you. We have the Lord's table at all four corners as well. And then as always, if some of us just need to change our posture to represent a heart change, if we need to recommit to the foundation of Jesus in our lives, to a new worldview that we're committing to, the front is open. Sometimes we just got to kneel and get before him. But let's make a declaration today together to worship him and set him as the foundation. Thank you for listening to the sermon from our Sunday service. If we can serve you in any way, please visit our website at citychurchotr.com. If you want to be a part of what God is doing in Cincinnati, you can support us financially. Giving can also be done on our website at citychurchotr.com slash give.